Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome everyone to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and for today's roundtable topic, I'm joined by my regular and stellar co-hosts, Heisey Lutmers. Hello, hello. And Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning, John. Welcome, guys. It's always great to have you here. Um, my topic for today is self-love. And, you know, this is the time of year. Uh, it's a time when we turn inward. And we, or at least we're, the season encourages us to turn inward. And um, I, I think one of the things that is fruitful to explore at this time of year is the nature of our relationship with ourselves. And there's nobody that knows you or has the opportunity to know you as well as you can know yourself because you're in there, right? But it seems to be the case that we struggle with something as basic and, and fundamental as loving ourselves uh, and, and in the ideal case, loving ourselves unconditionally. And, you know, we have these, we have a lot of uh, social and cultural uh, encouragements to self-esteem, but we don't talk so much and we don't talk so in so much detail about self-love. And so I would like to explore that a little bit with you guys. It, it seems like it ought to be obvious, but I don't know that it is. So uh, a bunch of questions to come, but let's start with the basic one. The first one, which is, what is self-love? I'll take this one, John. I think any Leos in the room. <laughs> I think Leos are probably a good exemplar of Leos, a certain yes. kind of nature of self-love, right? <laughs> well, 
I thought about this a lot. And basically for me, self-love is observing yourself on your life path from a place of deep appreciation. And you hit on a point that I was going to share coming from a point of compassion for yourself and on unconditional acceptance. And I love Maya Angelou's quote that says, when you know better, you'll do better. And it sounds very simple. But to me, what that really means is being kind to yourself and not judging yourself and not comparing yourself and having a deep feeling that I did the best I could with the information I have or where I am at in my growth path and learning to let that go when I have more data or when I've grown some more spiritually or physically or emotionally, then I may look at things differently and handle it differently. So deep appreciation, unconditional acceptance and compassion would be my definition for, and being a Leo. (laughs) (laughs) So I I really like that. Um, When, when I know better, I'll do better. It's, on the surface, right? The, my first interpretation or my first hearing of that was that that um, I'll get better with time. But upon reflection and how you've presented it, it actually sounds like self, almost like self-forgiveness, self-acceptance that um, I didn't know any better at this particular or at, at that juncture upon which I'm reflecting. So what I did was the best I could do given what I had at my disposal. That's how I take it. And it's, it's not a cop out to make you not responsible for your actions. It's an opportunity that sets the fertile ground to explore more, to go deeper, to grow some more. That's how I take it. Yeah, it kind of gives you both, right? It's, mm-hmm. it, it encourages you to improve, but it also gives you the self-compassion to accept the circumstances and the course of events that happened at the time based on who you were at that time. Yeah, and oddly enough, from that vantage point, if if you need to offer forgiveness, to someone or extend a, I'm sorry or apologize from that vantage point, from that fertile ground, it's much easier to do. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Hi, C. What about you? What for you, for you, what is, when we say, what is self-love? What does that conjure for you? Uh, well, I'm probably just going to echo much of what was already said. Um, Cause I think that ultimately it comes down to self-acceptance and being willing to say, this is who I am and I'm going to accept myself for who I am. And it doesn't mean we can't continue to grow and change, but it it means I'm not going to be upset about who I was in the past. I'm going to accept who I am now and I'm going to work from there. And it also, I think self-love is the realization <laughs> that it's about being ourselves rather than being who someone else says or thinks we should be or who we think we need to be in order to please somebody else. Mm, yeah. And that it's it's also recognizing that the person you're going to spend the most time with in your life is yourself. Right. So self-love is taking the responsibility to say, who do I want to spend that time with? How can I be the person that I'm going to sit at a restaurant table and have dinner and conversation with? How can I be that person that I want to 
walk down the street with? How can I be that person that I want to dot, 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 fill in whatever it is? But recognizing self-love means being the best I can be in my own eyes and being the person that I want to spend the most time with rather than someone who wants to find all sorts of ways of distracting myself from myself so I don't have to spend time in relationship with myself. You know, that's really interesting because there's uh, whenever whenever anybody talks about um, self-reflection, it, which is in a way, you know, spending you, the person you're going to spend the most time with is yourself. I, I like to, to look at both sides of that mirror, you know, like you wouldn't want to spend time with somebody who's constantly being critical of you, right? So if if you don't want to receive, so I often th- I often think that we emphasize the uh, the perspective of the actioner, right? The the person taking action. Um, but I think sometimes it's really powerful to to be on the receiving end of one's self, right? And and look at how what it's like to be the recipient of you in interaction with yourself, right? So, you know, as you say, you're going to spend all this time with yourself. Who do I want to hang out with? Do do I want to hang out with somebody who's picking at me all the time, who's criticizing me all the time, pointing out my faults all the time? Probably not, right? So then having resolved in my mind that, that that's actually who I want, you know, that there, there are characteristics of, of who somebody I want to be with, um, then I can then I can step into that and say, okay, well then, if that's the kind of person I want to be with, then maybe I should be that kind of person. <laughs> you know, and that, that sounds really obvious and self-reflective, but I find myself being kinder to others than I am to myself, and that doesn't even make any sense, but it happens. So we kind of straight into the to the question of how do you know when you're doing it how do you know when you're not doing it how do you know when you're not offering yourself self-love well for me i would say that when you're not offering yourself self-love you have a negative conversation or commentary or corrections going on in your head and that would involve maybe perhaps comparing yourself to others or comparing yourself to um, a non-life supporting belief system. Is there is there something about um, being goal driven that that puts self love at a disadvantage? Well, I don't know. It depends on what your goals are. Oh yeah. Okay. So right? so yeah. so being driven doesn't necessarily mean that you you're not loving yourself. For me, I would say if you look at the four personality types, um, a driver, an amiable, an analytical, or an expressive, you're simply, if you're speaking about yourself, you're simply a driver personality. And it's, so, and you, and it's possible to, to experience and, and live in a driver personality and, have, and be loving to the self. Why not? I guess it is. I mean, it's like it's like being a coach and and being a, being a wise coach. You don't oh, you don't overdrive your players. You, you know that that's counterproductive. Interesting. Yeah, like I I'm not a driver personality. I have I'm very goal driven. My goals 
support my life force energy, which is so I would call them very loving goals. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I would call them very loving Leo goals. <laughs> I see. How, how do you sense when you're when you're not loving yourself? I find that I often see it when I hear people say they don't know how to enjoy life, mm. or they have, or, or you say, well, you know, if you want to do something, you know, what is it that you're passionate about? What do you love? And they say, I don't know. So they become disconnected from that internal uh, source of what really drives them, what really feeds them. Yeah. Um, I think that when we find we're in a constant bad mood or we feel that everybody else is always somehow negative towards us or around us. Um, and also I think that if we tend to be prone to physical illness or maladies, that can often be a clear indication of a lack of self-love because it means that we're not thinking of ourselves and our bodies as important enough to take care of. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. Uh, and that's kind of one that uh, builds over time, right? It, it, you know, it's After years of lacking self-love and self-respect, uh, the body shows the, shows the signs of that, I guess. Interesting. So there are some examples of you know what it's like to not uh be self-loving what are some blocks to self-love like how how come we fall into not loving ourselves what do those blocks look like are they tangible are they what 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 do we get when we dig into that John when i was younger i remember i always had a sense that i loved myself I, I never had a problem in that area, but I do remember when the values and the external messages of society started to bang up against that self-love, and what it created in me for, I'd say, about 10 years is great confusion, mm. because in order for me to love myself, I was looking for, I was younger, I was looking for external validation or someone to join the parade and be joyful with me. Every turn that I met was based on a belief system or a validation system that really didn't seem to stick with how I saw myself. Ah. And what that gave me is great confusion and great sorrow. I, I just couldn't find that door to go through or I couldn't find the key for the lock. And so that would have been a block for me. So then yeah. finally one day I decided that, well, this path is not going to work for me. I may never have, you know, they may never sync up. I have to choose. Am I going to listen to my inner voice or am I going to listen to society's voice? And I decided, well, I will check in with my inner voice, which started a whole new exercise because I had to learn to acknowledge and listen and develop the muscle of my inner voice. And then after I started to listen to my inner voice, that's what I found really supported and nourished the self-love in a way that didn't cause confusion, in a way that gave me clarity. Yeah, so so one example of a, of a key block to self-love is embracing a value system that is in conflict with who you actually are. For me, it was. And I'm sure 
affected me, it would affect lots of people. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. I think that, I think there's a there's a examples in my own life where um, I chose to love the structure, the value system, and the structure that was imposed by the value system more than I loved myself. And that caused me a lot of discomfort for a long time. Mm -hmm. I see. So I think, well, first I would say that it ultimately it can be kind of summed up in self-worth. I think that it starts with childhood and, and the family that we're born into and whatever the dynamics are there, because there's all sorts of things around roles we're supposed to play and trying to live up to expectations and things that are put upon us as to who we're supposed to be or not supposed to be, what's right, what's wrong, etc. And so, you know, the first thing that we would need to do is to move beyond that. But we often fall into this trap for the rest of our lives of thinking that somehow we are supposed to be this or that, that we're trying to always gain the approval or validation, like Mildred was saying, of other people, and whether that's from family or as we get older, just the world around us, Mm -hmm. which means that our self-worth starts to get completely wrapped up in external validation um, rather than our own personal sense of what and who we are. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, and so I think that it's really ultimately looking at how am I defining my own self-worth and is that self-worth based on anything outside of me or am I the one who is the arbiter of what that self-worth is so that I'm not needing anything else to tell me that that's okay, nor am I trying to live up to any measure of expectation or anything else other than what I set for myself. Does that put us at risk for accepting, let's say, antisocial behavior or or anti-loving behavior? I mean, we live we don't live in isolation. We live in uh, in some sense in community, no matter what. Um, if we are only self-referential, are there risks in that? Um, what I was going to share is that not all of society's values are are non-life-supporting. Mm, right. So there could be positive ones out there. You could tap into the positive ones. Hi, see. No, it it just means that we don't have to have the validation of the society for us to feel okay about ourselves. And, you know, on a simple level, perhaps we do a project at work. And while we did the best we could, we did everything that we could with the resources that were given to us, and then we turn over the final project, and then our boss or somebody else who's completely unrelated but was just waiting for the project that was being done for them, suddenly they have an issue about it. Now, does that mean that I have to feel less than worthy about what it is that I created? Or does it mean that person may not have all of the information that I was working with and therefore what they're complaining about, maybe there are legitimate things that I can go back and change or fix or whatever, But they may also not know that I had limited resources and what they want is something that was beyond the scope of the resources I had available to me. So I can't now feel bad 
or feel I failed um, just because that other person is saying this isn't up to whatever level I was wanting, expecting, needing, desiring it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than me being able to say, yes, but if I look and see what it is I had available to me, I can say I did the best I could. Right. So it, so it doesn't, um, yeah, again, it's kind of like a an interesting dynamic where um, it's okay to take feedback from the environment, from the culture, uh, because we, cause we don't live in isolation. Uh, but, but it's also imperative that we recognize our own feedback loop. And I think maybe we often don't prioritize the internal feedback loop highly enough. And that leads us into a lack, like, like we, we stop being able to hear what's really true, uh, deep inside. Well, it goes to the, the term of constructive criticism. On the one hand, can we see that someone is offering criticism that is constructive, saying, you know, maybe this could be done this way. That might be different than the way we did it. We don't have to immediately go to, oh, I did it wrong. Right. Oh, how stupid was I for not right. seeing to do it that way. Right. Versus, oh, that is another way to do it, and maybe that would even be better than the way I did it. That's okay. That doesn't mean I did it wrong necessarily. It just means it's a different way. It doesn't mean that, and it doesn't mean that I, sh- that I sh- um, should abandon the kind and compassionate feelings I have toward myself because uh, why, why, why would it, it doesn't, it, it isn't uh, a requirement, you know, in taking criticism, it isn't a requirement that we abandon um, self-compassion. That's very interesting. John, one thing that really helps me when I am faced with any situation in terms of self-love is I go back to my soul and my soul chose to, uh, bring into the earth plane an aspect of itself and the aspect is my person that walks the earth. Right. And I have great faith and trust that my soul knew exactly what it wanted to accomplish, what it wanted to do, what it wants me to experience and learn. So my reference point is my soul, not what anybody else thinks. Right. And so I love my soul. So I love the aspect of my soul that's in the physical form in this space and time. And for me, that's my ultimate um, connection. And that's the connection that I strengthen and nourish. And from that vantage point, when you're looking at different things that happen to you and everybody has a different opinion, somehow you're very centered and you do have strength Mm. and you do have trust. And it gives you a nice lens to gain perspective on any situation. Now, saying that, it is a daily discipline to keep that connection right. to the, to your soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, <laughs> two things come to mind. Um, one thing that comes to mind is uh, from Buckaroo Banzai, you know, no matter where you go, there you are. And it's it's like, no matter what, no matter what has transpired to get me here, I am here. And uh, that somehow there was some order in the universe that got me to this place. And if I believe in a loving universe and I believe in a, an, in any kind of uh, benevolence, then the default ought to be gratitude and love for everything that got me here 
right? And and whether I understand it or not, uh, I'm here. And so whether I understand why or not, I'm here. And the best thing I can do is love the person that I'm closest to because that's going to create the most positivity around me and for me. It's it's a really it's it's funny. It's a really simple, um, but I think it does require practice, Mildred. And I think it's it's something you can very easily get thrown off uh, of doing, and it's something that needs constant renewal. Mm-hmm. All right. So so thoughts on uh, as we wrap, just some final thoughts on unblocking, and I think we we have covered a bunch of that. But any other final thoughts? Uh, well, one thing that I would offer is accept uncertainty. Mm. Because I think that self-love is about allowing ourselves to not have to be perfect. And it means we don't have to always know the answer. We don't always have to know everything. We don't always have to have the fix. It's okay for us to say, I don't know. And that is not any reflection on our... Uh, self-worth on the value that we have to offer to something. It has nothing to do with our inferior or superior place in the world. It just means in that moment, we don't know and that's okay. Right. And so when we can allow for that, it means we can look at ourselves as a constant work in progress. And therefore, we never hold ourselves to unreasonable standards of perfection or needing to be something that we're not, because it just means, oh, if I see that I would like to be that, but I'm not, then that gives me a challenge for what I can work on in myself and develop in myself as I move forward, rather than getting down on ourselves for how come I'm not already there, how come I don't know this, et cetera. Mm -hmm. However long it takes, if if I'm uh, if I'm honest about who I am in this moment and honest about my desire to improve, then love is surely the best way to cultivate and nurture the person that I want to be. Uh, anything less than love for the person that I want to be is going to be counterproductive. So. Uh, just let's bear that in mind. <laughs> Mildred Lynn, any final thoughts from you? Well, my thought is kind of along the same line as what Hi C shared and, and what you shared. What came in for me is step by step. Mm-hmm. I know that we can have an epiphany, we can have an ah moment, we can have an absolute realization that can happen magically in seconds. But for most of us, and this goes back to the discipline of connecting your soul with the part of you that's on the earth right now, it's a step-by-step process. And if you look at it as step-by-step in terms of self-love or many things, then you can pace yourself and take the pressure off. And then the second tip would be to observe dogs and how much they love you and tell yourself, I think I read a quote on this, you know, let me be the person that my dog thinks I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's fabulous. All right. Well, on that note, I want to thank my two co-hosts, Hi C. Lutmers and Mildred Lynn McDonald, for another fabulous conversation. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great show, John. Thank you. And we'll be right back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. 
And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. I want to share with you a story I put together on Christmas Eve. I was at the beach earlier that day with my girlfriend. It was blustery and cold. We had just gone to the local grocery store to pick up some last-minute things. We then went to the coffee shop and grabbed a warm drink. Then we walked to the beach. At the grocery store, it was a madhouse. There were carts blocking every aisle. There were stockers with big trolleys restocking shelves. There was the usual surplus of hackneyed Christmas music. The checkout lines were long and the checkers haggard. I asked my checkout clerk if he had a rubber band because the large carton of eggs I bought was popping open and he responded with a snarl, No, I don't have a rubber band. On the way out to the car, the parking lot was a madhouse. It was a precarious journey just to get to the car. We were just getting in when passengers in the adjacent car appeared, frantic to get in their car and leave the parking lot. And who could blame them, really? Their panicked energy assaulted me through the glass of my window. We went to the coffee shop, and it was almost blissful by comparison, but the baristas weren't quite on the ball, and a hot chocolate appeared instead of a hazelnut latte. He hurriedly scrawled L, looking unfortunately like C, so the customer who was waiting ahead of us was disappointed, panicked, harried, and late to return to her shift at the local candy store. We walked from there to the beach. The wind was surprisingly cold. It was biting. We both readjusted our coats. The Qigong we had planned was out of the question. The warmth of our beverages was no match for the stormy ocean wind. At least it had stopped raining. I was in a funk. Had been for the last few days, and my girlfriend had been dealing with this funk pretty much nonstop, and it was dragging her down so I wasn't very good company. We were sitting there, me feeling like an assault victim, just escaped from a beating, only to find myself attempting to recuperate in a frigid wind. She asked me if I was happy. I said no. And you know what she said? She said, we only have a short time here. We don't get to feel like this once we don't have a body anymore. I think it's amazing. I wish you would, too. Why can't you just enjoy it? There I was, sitting in the company of a beautiful, sensual woman, on a rock by a stunning beach, with crashing waves and spray being whisked off the storm-churned wave tops by a powerful wind. I had a warm, richly flavored drink in my hand. The post-winter solstice sun was shining down in a momentarily clear sky of deep winter blue, and I was in essentially perfect health. I had just visited a storehouse 
of unimaginable abundance, with fresh herbs, fruits, and vegetables still in my car trunk, along with the aforementioned eggs, a bottle of Pinot Noir, and a bottle of champagne. And I felt, or chose to feel, to be honest, crappy. What is it about us humans that we have the capacity to make into misery that which is nothing but blessings? What is it about me that signs up for yet another helping of self-inflicted depression? It's so senseless. Perhaps that's one key. It's senseless. For all the sensory overload I just described to you, the truth is I wasn't really present for any of it. Just marginally connected to the experiences because, meh, why bother? The meh, why bother part is not an easy puzzle to solve. We don't start out that way. To get to that place, we have to pass through another phase. And in that preliminary phase, we're having an experience where something's not right, something's not in balance. One has to be in some kind of pain, emotional, psychic, physical, for one to get to a place of disinterest in one's sensate experience. And whatever that pain is, when it becomes chronic, the natural reaction is to numb oneself to it so that it recedes from one's central awareness into the background. But as Dr. Brene Brown discovered in her research on vulnerability, you can't selectively numb. If you numb the bad stuff, you numb the good stuff too. The simple truth is that we're best served by addressing our pain as quickly as possible so that it doesn't become chronic and so that that coping mechanism of numbing is not invoked. I think there's a danger in the choice to disconnect from the sensate world, a very particular kind of danger. Once we disconnect from our feeling selves, we're no longer compelled by physics to be in the present. Let me say that again. Once we disconnect from our feeling selves, we're no longer compelled by physics to be in the present. We lose the data stream. While the mental and emotional selves can be in the past or in the future, the body can only be in the present. So we lose our visceral, carnal, animal connection with the present moment when we stop sensing the world around us. That puts us in a dangerous place. It unmoors us from the reality around us and leaves us easily buffeted by the snarling winds of our own woundedness. It leaves us vulnerable to the negative stories we tell ourselves or consume via what passes for news media these days about the state of the world. And while I'm not suggesting that there aren't problems in the world, because there are, it's compellingly not the case that there's no good news to be absorbed and assimilated. And furthermore, for most of us, blessed to live in a wealthy country like the United States, in any given moment, we lack for very little. The Buddhist question, what in this moment is lacking, usually turns up, at least for me, very little. Disconnecting from our sensate selves puts us into what I call the map. I often share that there's a huge difference between the map and the terrain. When we leave our sensate selves we leave the terrain and enter the map. The map, of course, is our model of the world. It's a model that's been crafted by our experiences, to be sure, 
But those experiences include traumas from our childhood that we were too young to fully understand. And worse, the map includes instructions and data that were preloaded into it by our parents' views and the views of the overculture in which we're soaking. We're saturated by viewpoints of other people from other times with other wounds and other agendas. So when we leave the terrain, we're subject to a whole host of misinformation about who we are, where we fit in, and what we're good for. That's a recipe for dissonance with our higher selves. The reverberations of our flawed programming are never more phantasmagorical than when we have opted out of our sensate experience in favor of some model of reality. It's how we can come to vilify and dehumanize people or communities or cultures with whom we have virtually no direct experience. It's how we can subject others to brutality or allow others to be so subjected. It's how we can categorically view the poor as lazy or foreigners as interlopers or a host of other stereotypes. And it's how we can declare ourselves worthless. Now I'm back home now, having just noshed on some marshmallow fudge brought over by a neighbor. I've just plugged in the Christmas lights, and the living room and my piano are colorfully arrayed. The sky is gray. The raindrops are large, and the wind is still fierce. I look outside on the deck and see my outdoor altar, the one that holds the large eight-point buck skull I call the elder, and the small four-point buck skull I call the fool. Echoes of two beings whose lives were no doubt very different, but ended just the same, and who no longer have sensate experience, no longer have the exquisite instrument that is flesh and blood with which to experience this reality. My girlfriend is listening to some festive music downstairs, the sound of which is filtering up to me. And I have to ask, what in this moment is lacking? We'll be right back. Next up on Convergence, I want to share with you a conversation I had with Daniel Four back in January of 2013. Three years ago, Daniel was more of an acquaintance. Now I know him as a friend, a colleague, and a deeply respected teacher. The conversation back in 2013 was about me getting to know myself. For some reason, I had a notion to reshare it with you for this show. And when I re-listened to it, I realized why. It contains deep wisdom, not just on coming to know oneself, but on understanding how to love oneself as well. It's perfect for this month's theme. Let's listen. Welcome back. This is Convergence. I'm your host, John Carasella. And with me for today's spirited conversation is Daniel Four. Daniel is a PhD and an MFT. He leads trainings, rituals, and community circles focusing on honoring ancestors and tending our relations with the natural world and remembering our unique destiny and calling. He also offers individual healing, mentorship sessions, and ministerial services, things like weddings, funerals, birth rituals, home blessings, and so on. Daniel is also a priest of Ifa and Obatala in the Ifa Orisha tradition of Yoruba-speaking West Africa and the African diaspora. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Welcome, John. So uh, we have 
been acquaintances for a while, but mm-hmm. this is really the first time that we've had a chance to get to know each other mm-hmm. uh, across the table. Mm-hmm. And I kind of chose this moment because I've been thinking about the question, know thyself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been called to get a better understanding of my own magic, the nature of my magic. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about, okay, so how do you determine who you are? How do you, what are the tools that you can bring to bear on knowing yourself? Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine, this was really strange. A friend of mine just happened to, to you know, we were sitting around uh, goofing off on a Saturday evening and he said, you know, I just realized you're Italian. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he's looking at me, right? And, you know, I have Italian features. And he's like, I, I, I never really, never really noticed that before. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting clue. Like, my heritage says something about who I am. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Why is my heritage relevant to this question? Why and how? Mm-hmm. And so I thought about ancestors. Mm-hmm. I thought about the long lineage that connects me to the past and I just began to wonder how does that how does that influence who I am? How does that help determine who I am? And maybe that's a clue for how I can know myself. And that led me to you. Yep. Because you do ancestor work. Mm-hmm. So can you help me with this question? Yeah, great. I want to start by deconstructing the question in a couple ways. Uh, So if the question is, how do I know myself? How does one know themselves? Um, There are two ways in which the question is loaded. One is it implies the self is singular, and the other is it potentially implies that the self can be known apart from other selves, both of which are suspicious assumptions. And (laughs) I am am coming partly from a background of a student of indigenous wisdom, but also a student of, of Buddhism and the Dharma to some degree. And from a Buddhist perspective, the notion that the self can exist as an absolutely independent reality apart from other selves is, uh, it's seen as an illusion. That there's dependent arising and that I am a convergence of many different forces that if you take them all away, there's not necessarily something left. And so to start with, we're embedded in a web of relationships. And so to know yourself in a way, to reframe it slightly, you could say, what's your, what's my place? What's my role? What's my unique song or note in the convergence of forces that I'm a part of? And I gather from the setup that mm. that, that unique song or note actually does not emanate from a dualistic self. It actually is the result of a whole bunch of convergence of... Correct, yeah. Yeah, there's no... Uh, if there's no one to hear the interview, is Daniel really real? If there's no echo back from the forces that are uh, mirroring a certain kind of you exist energy back to me, am I really real? I'm not. I'm not convinced that I exist totally separate from other things. Put it that way. I don't have any evidence to support that. And so there might be very deep karmic multiple lifetime energies at a seed level that do continue beyond this life that connect me to family and the land and all different kinds of things. But even those things are dependent on... They have their own history. Yeah, they have their own history, exactly. So, And that's fine. We have a, a relatively real existence. Uh, and 
So if you if you start with that assumption that we're embedded in relationships, then you have to start to ask, what are the relationships we're embedded in? If you want to know yourself and know your place, and so from a Western modern Western cultural point of view, the biggest problem that fuels our ecological meltdown and injustice toward other humans and all the ways in which we're screwing it up on the planet is that only other living human beings are totally real. And even not not all of them all the time. We tend to objectify a lot of other people uh, in subtle ways that are sneaky. and, and, uh, And so if we only see other living humans as a source of relationship, the alternative is to objectify, say, the spirits of the land, of the elements, of plants and animals, and of the unseen or non-physical beings like ancestors or deities. And so if we, for one, we lose out on potential intimate interactions with those beings when we see them as objects, and we tend to relate with the natural world as an object when we don't see the spirit of the salmon or the land here in the Bay Area as a person, as an I-thou relationship. And so part of the fix or corrective that engaging with indigenous earth-honoring wisdom can bring is that we regrow or reactivate our receptor site or our capacity for intimate relationships with beings that aren't only human, uh, the spirits of the animals, the ancestors, etc. And so once we do that, and it's not like it happens overnight, but once we say, okay, maybe these, maybe there is a strategic advantage to seeing these other beings as relatives, as community, as other types of persons, even if they're not human persons, and we start to relate accordingly, then the advantage of that is that from their side, we're more fun to be around, we're more relational, we're more conscious, and there can be healing, there can be a greater sense of uh, awareness of place that extends beyond just the living community. And so that's one piece of the fix, is to expand our perception of personhood or of who's a relative, who's family, who's a potential source of intimate connection beyond just living humans. So there's a couple of things here that I think would be enjoyable for us to explore a little bit. And one is that when we choose to be in relation to, you know, when we choose to ad- to admit the possibility of relation, mm-hmm. right, with the spirits of the land or with the squirrels or with, right. you know, whatever. Uh, you know, my first thought is, well, okay, that involves me shifting my consciousness, shifting my focus to embrace them, mm-hmm. right? But I think there's, it's like you said, we're more fun to be around, mm-hmm. indicates something about the nature of a relationship that might go unnoticed when we say this, right? And that is that if we see them as relatives, if we see them as something possible to have relationship with, mm-hmm. they respond. Oh, yeah. Right? And that, mm-hmm. and it's that that responsiveness that makes us have more fun. Yeah. The beings miss out on our company. I... We live in the Bay Area here, San Francisco Bay Area, and 250 years ago, there were about 20,000, more or less, humans at the time of substantial Spanish contact, and there's about 8 million humans now, and it's my sense that the spirits of this land probably get less or maybe about as much ritual acknowledgement or care or attention today. With 8 million of us. Yeah, with 8 million of us, than they got 
250 years ago. And so it's it's my read. For one, there's a way in which the spirits of the natural world can be appropriately mistrustful or even angry about past harms. But moving past that level, you know, with acknowledgement to the need for healing there, there's also a way in which they, they miss the connection. Yeah, human we, beings can be pretty interesting. Yeah, we're part of nature. We're it. This is the earth talking. You know, we're part of the natural world. And so when we accept that and accept our relatedness, then, then yeah, and there's a joy and a sweetness that can come from that that has psychological and physical health benefits and all that. Yeah. But how does that help me know myself? Well, it... Let me let me uh, come back to the question of knowing yourself. The other thing I wanted to bring attention to is about the assumption that there's a singular self, there's a singular John to be known. Mm-hmm. Uh, many indigenous cultures have an understanding of the soul or the self that's uh, multiple, not not singular. We tend, because we're raised in a, a culture that's pretty influenced historically by monotheism of Christianity, to assume that the soul is singular. Uh, one example from uh, Mongolian Buryat culture, the human soul is actually a convergence of three souls, uh, one of which reincarnates along the bloodline, one of which reincarnates, but it doesn't tend to follow the bloodline, and a third of which does not reincarnate, only takes birth once, and settles in the natural world upon death. And so there is and there is not reincarnation. Yes, it follows and doesn't follow the bloodlines. And so when you say who... How do I know myself on a deep soul level? You say, well, which soul, which stream of soul level consciousness do you want to tune into and identify with? So that's uh, there's a in that sense we 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 can't know ourselves apart from knowing the different stories, the different um, sections in the orchestra that are creating a complex sound that we tend to register as one energy. And so the different souls can bring different karmic or soul level demands or drives to our being. So to know yourself in a way is reframed then as how do you harmonize the community of energies that are you in a way that keeps the peace. And keeps the peace where? Internally. Internally. Internally for, to start with. Mm-hmm. And then relationally, it generally speaking, it's like people... Generally, as I see it from indigenous cultures, people care less about individual enlightenment and more about being an ethical, useful, and beautiful person. And so people, it's like, okay, so you're enlightened. Who cares? Show us. Show us your enlightenment in action then. Right. Be, be useful. Help people to be happier, healthier, <laughs> right, right. and, you know, and, and live in a good way. And so the question of who am I is, reframe slightly to what's my destiny what's my unique role what mm-hmm. what's what are my original instructions what what's my unique will or uh what's my magic yeah what's my magic same yeah and so how do you answer that question one way to approach it is what uh what are the powers what are the deities what are the forces of nature of from the vast spectrum of forces that we're cooked out of which are the ones that are really featured in the recipe that is John that is Daniel so what's the starting question is what powers are you aligned with you could say traditionally what clan are you a part of what spiritual society within the larger culture is your medicine aligned with 
that's a basic typology kind of thing mm-hmm. that exists in a lot of indigenous cultures. It's like, oh, you're a child of Obatala, or you're a part of the water clan, or you're um, part of this, you know, you have, you're, you're a dreamer, so you should connect with other people who dream strongly. And so asking what are my unique gifts and talents, what are my natural affinities, what are my natural strengths, that's one way to start to approach the question of how do I know myself? Because then it gives a perspective on how you can start to convert your natural strengths into actions or ways of showing up that benefit others, whether they're human or other than human. That, that right. you're that you're then able to that you're able to drink in the supportive community long enough until you get strong spiritually and get insight into what you're here to do. And as that insight comes more and more to fruition, then you can convert it into benefit for that community that's been supporting you. Hmm. I, you know, as you say that, I experience a, a kind of uh, a kind of deep relaxation hmm. of knowing myself is as straightforward as loving myself. Mm-hmm. And by that, I, I'm drawn to, like, tending to the parts of myself that are fun, that are joyful, mm-hmm. that are, you know, what, what I'm good at, and giving myself without judgment to those things that I'm good at. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a simple and practical, and it's not self-indulgence, it's, oh, these are the f- ingredients in the recipe that are featured mm-hmm. yeah. in, the, in the construction, or, or you know, the the instruments in the in the song that are featured. Yeah. The something I love about indigenous traditions generally speaking is that there's a respect for difference and diversity. People are not expected to all be the same. Uh what a nightmare if we had to all be the same. And so the memo is like be yourself. Actually it's not an option. It's a moral obligation, we insist that you be yourself. Because if you're not being yourself, you're going to be annoying to other people. (laughs) Because you're going to be fighting and kicky and unhappy and and taking your unhappiness out on other people. And and two, you're going to be less useful, less effective. Your soul's going to be in a state of rebellion. So there's the, the guidance is basically like, get to know your own nature, accept that, Accept that it's going to be different than some other people. Accept that it might be different from what you think you ought to be based on cultural conditioning and your family and every other thing. Uh, like uh, women, for example, who happen to be a strong warrior spirit by nature. Right. That can be challenging to accept because the culture gives strong uh, guidance on how women are supposed to be in more and less obvious ways. And so that can be a harder one to accept. Same for men who are very stereotypically feminine by temperament and culturally have a strong message that they need to be very stereotypically masculine. And right, so when right. when your soul is comes into conflict with the outer culture, that can be hard to embrace. But until you embrace it, you're going to be a pain in the butt to people around you and not very happy. And so that congruence, there is a relief. There is a, a relaxation that comes from a culture whose elders, when they're healthy... I'm generalizing again about earth-honoring cultures, and other cultures carry this to different degrees. 
where the message is be yourself and and don't be our version of what we say you need to be really dig in there and be yourself and we that is what will lead you to the most effective service that's what will lead you to have the uh, best chance at longevity and good health because you're so so why don't so there's this tension in, in me right now that uh, reflects on well people being themselves uh, if you say be yourself there's a lot of people that are wounded and mm. and dysfunctional mm. right and so the commission to go be yourself yeah includes that included in that commission is the dysfunction that you currently are yeah the and, and this is actually this is a key part of the of the nature of the question right to know to i, I don't want to know myself i don't want to know myself as i am now particularly right i want to know myself as my highest implementation my my most elegant implementation of myself right. because that's the one that has the magic that is the purest and the most accessible and the most productive in this world. Right. I don't want to. I don't want to leverage the dysfunctional versions of yeah. John. I want to leverage the healed whole version of John. Right. Well, often I'll give an example from Ifa Arisha tradition. I've uh, been ritually read as through divination and subsequently initiated as a priest of Obatala. Obatala is just one of maybe a dozen archetypal forces of nature, Orisha, that are really actively worked with, even though there are many powers. Uh, and and so through that initiation, part of the message to me is, is be yourself. Be that, uh, how to say, uh, the reading implies that my Ori, my personal head, my personal temperament is most in alignment with that force relative to other forces and that rings true for me and any given force may show up in ray or with blessings or with eb or potentially more blocked or out of balance or in the less the less awesome expression of that and so by being identified as part of that clan so to speak or part of that uh, specialization within the larger community it's saying that i also need to watch for the ways in which that shows up out of balance and so no, you you had the good fortune of having someone read you mm-hmm. and guide you to that notion of self and gift. True, right? Yeah. For those of us who don't have that, where do we get our reading? One of the things I've done with people at times, it's my sense, this is not just in Arisha tradition, but a lot of other traditions recognize that we, we structurally have a direct relationship with Divine Mother and Father Consciousness, with the masculine and feminine, in deep structural ways. And there's, let's say, at least a dozen ways that the masculine and the feminine can show up at any given time, like big archetypes, big patterns in the collective experience of humans. And so those can be really intense or energetically hot, really mellow and dreamy, really uh, quick and mercurial, or really grounded and patient. And so for each person... If we don't have a vocabulary, then we can't start to answer the question. And so I would say for each person, identify a dozen different archetypes, different forces, deities, energies that express the masculine for you and express the feminine for you. And you could imagine walking around a circle 
and looking at these different really cultivated elders and powers. Right, right. And one might be a really thin, tall, cool, lunar priestess energy who's mm-hmm. very different than the earth mama and right, who's right. very different than the volcanic, destructive, fiery goddess of justice. And so get to know and appreciate who are, what are the options? Right, right. Who, who are I the different like elder beings in the circle that right. you could potentially vibe with? And if you and if you flesh that out and notice who's in the circle and, and imagine walking around it, you'll notice that some you feel naturally seen by and naturally close with, and other ones you might feel allergic reaction to. That's cool. And so, what what deities, what powers have aversion for you? Mm. And and that might mean that there's actually a deep connection there. The ones that you feel really neutral about is probably not you. You have less work to do there. Right. Right. But if you feel a strong yes, wow, I feel really seen by that, or a strong no, then there's probably work there. Like for me with Obatala, there's a part of me that could sit alone for hours and hours and hours and just organize things into categories. It's a it's a little bit like there's a savant like <laughs> I, like I could be happy with that Vulcan streak in my being and 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 by uh, having that called out it's like it's okay Daniel that you're also like that I mean don't dwell on that all the time but acknowledge uh, it yeah acknowledge it and there's a part of my psyche that's a lot more like the uh, elaborate structure of a crystal than like something really messy and, and or flowing it, yeah and flowing yeah right. and and that's okay that's, and that's be, that's evidenced by the fact that you got your PhD yeah <laughs> yeah and and I'm very systematic very organized about stuff and it usually serves me well and it's like saying careful Daniel make sure you're in balance about that so it's it's not so much that you accept wholeheartedly or reject wholeheartedly any aspect, but that you acknowledge those aspects and seek to experience them in in harmony. Yeah. So maybe the dysfunctions through which we suffer are really aspects of ourselves that are out of balance. Yes. Many people, to talk about it in a Jungian psychology framework, are unconsciously possessed by the powers we're talking about. And so they come out in sloppy and chaotic ways. And one of the only ways, for example, uh, let's say there was a woman who wanted to enlist my support and was very conflictual, having a lot of conflictual relationships and, and feeling bad about that. And through intuition, divination, it was my read that she is a natural warrior by temperament but it feels really frightened and unwilling to embrace that. Mm-hmm. And so, in a way, what the fix is to bring it more conscious, to honor that power. Exercise so, it so yeah, you yeah, get to understand To it. bring it out so it's not coming out sideways. Mm. And to really claim it. Be like, okay, you're a badass warrior. Be that, really. And all this other stuff will quiet down for you. And so sometimes it's that the forces are coming through, but they because they can't consciously really be seated or really be settled, then they come out sideways in problematic ways. If someone's really struggling with like addiction and sort of hedonistic tendencies, it might be like, 
look, you're a child of the love goddess. You need to be the biggest queen and artist and creative, colorful, take up a lot of space person that you can be. And some of this will quiet down. It's like embrace the archetype in its fullness. It's kind of terrifying, though, to do that because of the the sense of the risk that you might lose yourself in that archetype. Well, you're already being ridden by it when Ah, you're in that condition. Right. Embracing it consciously is a kind of depossession. It's a way of being in relationship instead of being unconsciously identified with the force. Right. Instead of being ridden by it, you choose to co-create with it or dance with it exactly it's like that with ancestors too i tell people and i don't mean to be a a jerk about it but i tell people that either you have a conscious or unconscious relationship with your ancestors those are kind of the two options you don't get to not (laughs) have a relationship relationship, Uh, i mean you cannot yeah you cannot have a conscious relationship with them in which in let's say you don't have a shrine you don't have an altar you don't have any outward way at all that you honor them in your life so as a result you're the altar you're the place where they manifest Mm -hmm. through the body through your actions through your desires through your relationships because there's nowhere that they're seated so it's an unconscious relationship when one of the advantages of having an altar is that you create a space for that force in your life and you symbolically say i'm not that energy i'm in relationship with that energy so therefore, the ancestors live just uh, you know a few feet away from me at the ancestor altar, and not in my body all the time. Of course, they're here as well, but there's more breathing room. It can be relational. So let's take a short break and come back and talk a little bit more about ancestors. Good. And the ways that we can be in relationship with ancestors, and reflect a little bit more about relationship. Good. All right. So we'll be right back. Good. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. We're back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella, together with Daniel Four. And Daniel, before the break, we were talking about ancestors and the idea of the ans- having a relationship with the ancestors, mm-hmm. whether you want one or not, right? <laughs> yeah. conscious or unconscious, and the idea of the ancestor altar and how the ancestor altar can give you some breathing room. Can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. With respect to ancestors, when I bring up that topic, I'm limiting it basically to our human ancestors because some people will use that word to be very inclusive, which is fine. And so I'm making a distinction that I'm talking about all the collective consciousness of human that's not currently physically embodied. And so it's the other half of our being. You can think of human as having one foot in the visible and one in the invisible, and the whole organism is both. And so ancestors is the our other side that's not in bodies right now. And so generally with ancestors, there's a couple different types. One would be the ancestors of the land, of the place where you live, uh, which are not always our ancestors of blood. And then there's ancestors of affinity or of lineage, ancestors that aren't related by blood that might be more of a tradition or a friend that's passed or someone who's inspired us. 
And all those are important, but the type of ancestor work or ancestor focus that I give the most weight to is ancestors of blood or a family. Because sometimes adoptive family is just as much family even though they're not technically blood related. So when I step people through ancestor work, which is a big focus of what I do, one, the, the way that I approach that is stepping people through what I've come to call a lineage repair cycle, which in, involves participants choosing one quarter of their blood ancestry, so their father's father's people, their mother's father's people, etc., and to focus on that quarter of their blood ancestry until the recent and older ancestors are well in spirit, elevated, bright, loving, supportive, and they indicate to the participant, it's good, we're well, focus on another quarter now. And so there's a systematic working through the four sides of the family until you get to a place where you know your recent dead, your remembered ancestors, and the more distant ancestors who need care still, they have, they're well, they've joined the ancestors, they're not ghosts, they're not in a heavy condition, they're not in a troubled condition. Once you've arrived at that point, then the relationship resets back to more of a relationship of maintenance and of natural uh, receiving from the ancestors as the junior to their elderhood, because that's structurally there are elders. So, and, so, so uh, what is what is the net result of of repairing the lineage? What happens on the earth plane for us? For yeah, a lot can happen. Um, for one energies that have been heavy in our field, in our aura, in our lives, in our psyche are lifted. So we're not uh, feeling the weight of unhappy or unwell dead from our family. Uh, so on a, on a like metaphysical spirit level, the energy is lighter. Uh, two, our perception of our family is almost always improved. And it doesn't mean we open ourselves up to abuse if our family is abusive. You know, it can actually lead to more healthy boundaries. But our family is then is seen in the context of ancestors. So we don't expect our biological mother and father anymore to embody the divine mother and father. We see that uh, they are just one point in a river of consciousness, and we can relate with our grandmothers and grandfathers, spiritually speaking, directly and get that loving mother-father energy through the collective wisdom of lineage in a way that takes the pressure off our families, our immediate family. Uh -huh. And that can be very supportive to forgiveness and seeing our parents in a more human light. And we are freed up to live our lives without the heavy, subtle... I'm a victim of my childhood story that so many people hold on to because they aren't sure how to transform that old pain. Right, right. Yeah, and and the ancestors help us to get clear about the question of our unique destiny because often we are carrying on some kind of positive gift or legacy from them. Often we're doing that unconsciously. Right, and unconsciously, and so yeah. we don't actually know that it's there, and so we can't bring it forward. Right. Uh, or or it comes through naturally. Or I mean, a, a lot of people who are leading awesome, balanced lives are just spontaneously embodying the good from their people. Yeah, mm. And so it, it gives us choice, too, to not unconsciously play out stories that are not helpful from them. 
Right. Yeah. So there's there's a lot. It can lead to direct family healing and repair as well. Yeah. So it's in relationship again. The this idea of knowing oneself comes into bloom mm-hmm. when you know yourself in relation to your lineage. Yeah. You know, and I just want to uh, touch on this a, a little bit more. You said the ability to work with your ancestors takes the pressure off your immediate parents to be divine mother, divine father. Yeah. And that struck me as opening a long, opening a gate to a long path that leads back to divine source through the lineage. The rites of passage for adolescence in at least some, if not many, indigenous cultures very explicitly put the adolescent in direct communion with the god, goddess, consciousness, however that culture conceives of it, so that they don't remain developmentally stuck in the in the place of trying to get that from other living humans. One of the big problems in intimate relationships is we're wanting our partner to be the goddess or the the divine masculine, and it's totally unreasonable if we do that. And it is a way of masking our own need to be directly in communion with those forces. One of the, uh, if you look even at like Tibetan Buddhist tantric practice, there's a whole cycle of mother tantra and father tantra that precedes the non-dual tantric work. And the implication of that, as as I understand it, I'm not a teacher of that tradition, is that one needs to really have activated those two sides of the psyche in order to have the the child of our authentic self, of our unique self, be born. Uh, in a more shamanic vocabulary, for me, I see developmentally a need for us to relate well with the earth, what's below, with the stars, with the heavens, with the cosmic forces, and with humanity. And the human as a mode of consciousness is a child of heaven and earth of Mother Earth and Father Sky. And so the work is to relate well with the land, with the plants, animals, powers, elements, where we're at, all the forces of nature, to relate well with the transcendent, with the deity, with the many energies that are underlying what we're what we're made of, and to remember our destiny in that way, and to bring that together in our unique human mode of consciousness so we're not annoying too much to other people so we know how to love other people and take in their love we know how to be like be ethical be sensible pay our bills vote even and and how to navigate human consciousness and so and this this comes simply from knowing oneself well if we like if the self is at the center of the circle the way to know what's at the center of the circle is not to sit at the center of the circle. You need to go all over the place and and expand how the circumference of it and to, to see you can't know yourself fully without knowing the stars or the weird Dumbo octopus at the bottom of the ocean or knowing how to forgive your father or how to... Uh, pay your bills and how to how to navigate all these different demands from different domains of reality, all of which are sacred, some of which we like, some of which we dislike, 
but they're all part of what we are. There's nothing outside the self. There's nothing foreign to the self. And so whatever you think is not you is points to something that you haven't yet recognized as part of as part of you. Part of you. Yeah. Because the because whatever is out there is in some form or fashion interacting with you and and asking for some kind of conscious response. It's part of the story. Not all story. not all the relatives, not all the different kinds of people are friendly. Some wish to kill us and you know, revel in the energy of fear and death. And and you don't want to invite those energies into your home, but they're your relative. They're still part of our extended family. And so we I, I I frame the question of knowing oneself more as knowing your place, knowing your role, knowing your particular unique work and song and trajectory in the larger web of beings. And the, and that exercise that exercise of discovering your song is not an exercise you do alone. Correct. In, in your correct. That's part of the reality check. Sometimes people think that there's. Sadly, there's a lot of wounded people in spiritual circles, and I used to be more so one of those people. And and one of the um, things that will happen is people believe that they have discovered themselves, and they have, they may genuinely be tapping into a really expanded type of consciousness, but the, the response back is, who, who cares a little bit if you're not showing up well, if you can't ground it in a way that brings love and benefit and beauty into other people's lives, hmm. then you, it's not, it's not of benefit, I guess. And so the, the reality check on whether or not our self-knowledge has become useful is others and other beings and whether or not uh, you bring happiness to others through how you show up. Yeah, that's, that's very that's very sweetly profound that knowing oneself both compels and requires it the interaction with the world yeah the the uh, ethic that i've encountered that to me is the most i don't know it sounds snobby when i say evolved but i'll own my judgment there so the most evolved articulation of a human potential that I've encountered is the Bodhisattva teachings in Mahayana Buddhism, so Zen, Tibetan, other lineages of Buddhism. And as I understand it, in a nutshell, the Bodhisattva it, vow and ideal that one aspires to embody is an ethic of profound non-abandonment. Basically says that I will return again and again and again to birth presumably human birth, but maybe not, could be any different form, in order to just be with all the beings who are still suffering and may not know themselves yet and may need a companion and may need care. And I'm not running away. Spirituality is not about getting out of here. It's about mustering the courage to never abandon another being and to keep showing up again and again and again and again. And as I understand it, you can arrive at that ideal two general ways. One is through great love and compassion 
and that says like why would I possibly want to leave my child and if every being is my child and my mother I, I com- I, I'm not going to do that I commit to being here like, and another way of arriving at it is through getting theologically or religiously just checkmated around the idea that you can have individual enlightenment that you, John, or I could be enlightened while other beings are suffering it implies that there's some fundamental separation between you and others which is an illusion and if that's an illusion, if you really examine it and you're like, man, I haven't found a way to substantiate that I'm totally separable from other beings, then individual enlightenment is it's like the left hand is saying it's happy while the right hand is bleeding. And there's a, the, it doesn't make any sense to pursue, it, it's suddenly individual enlightenment looks like cowardice. It looks like running. Unless it's motivated by a desire to become more effective at helping others, right? Uh, and so, so there's a there's a thing that for me that's very instructive. It's like don't run away, come back, you know? Yeah, yeah. Fall in love with the world and other beings, and and then ask how can you help? How can them? I help? Yeah. yeah. How can I yeah. help? Yeah. What's needed? You want to know yourself? Ask how you can help. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What's my place? Well, I'm not sure what my place is. Well, what's needed? That's a good start. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're almost out of time. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that you, any last thought you'd like to share with our audience? With respect to earth honoring spirituality, one thing I've noticed, this is what comes to mind right now, is we have to get good at tracking our bliss, tracking what brings us joy, makes us happy. If you love dreams, then go for that. Use that as your inroad to the bigger, full, holistic picture of the spiritual path. If you love plants, go with that. If you love, you know, whatever it is. So there are lots of ways in, and the important thing is to find one or two that work for you. And that bring you joy. Yeah, exactly. Like if the spiritual path isn't generally making your life better and more fulfilling and helping you to feel more yourself and more happy, you're doing it wrong. So, and that's okay. Just Yeah, it's okay to do it wrong. Yeah, <laughs> but then just like, you know, have higher standards. It's okay to want your life to get better. It doesn't mean you necessarily have more money and all those things, but, but you might. Uh, but there's no, spirituality is not a separate thing from life. Mm. And so uh, it's about helping your life to be more loving and effective. So, Good counsel. Good yeah. counsel. So if folks want to get to know more about you or your work or want sure. to reach out to you, well, how can they do yeah. that? Yeah, my personal practice and website is at ancestralmedicine.org. Yeah. All right, we'll have those on the website for folks. Great. Yeah. Daniel, thank you so much for a very stimulating, enlightening conversation. Yeah. Thanks, John. We'll be in touch again soon. Great. And we'll be right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasella. 
I went on a hike with a friend recently, up Sweeney Ridge here in Pacifica. It's a really fabulous place. I'm definitely going to go there again, probably regularly. I suspect that over time, I'll find some precious and sacred spots that will embrace me. I'm looking forward to finding some places for ceremony right around Pacific, and I think I think Sweeney Ridge may be a doorway. What I liked most about the hike was the way the trail curled around to bring me a view of Pacifica from behind it and looking over its shoulder down to the water. I've hiked Montero Mountain, but that's really to the south of town. This trail took me to the east. It was such a sweet view of the land, the homes, the contours, the way the weather and the geology shaped it. It was just lovely. I thought about Montero Mountain, visible to the south. I was reminded that it's a huge piece of granite from the Sierras that got split off a zillion years ago, wandered up the fault line, and out to sea. A chunk of a different tectonic plate, caught on a one-way ticket to another place. I looked in wonder at the way it had plowed up the land in front of it as it moved, being a mountain-sized chunk of granite and all. And I wonder, too, about how deep it goes. Is it like an iceberg with seven-eighths of its mass below the ground? The mass of this moving monolith staggers the mind when you contemplate it. Stopping to really digest the landscape, to align with it, to come into communion with it. It's very interesting to be the land. What did it actually feel like to be shaped by the forces of the tectonic plates and the weather and everything in between? From the deep, slow-moving powers of Earth through to the most delicate and ephemeral movements of the air, the wind, the way the clouds block the sun. What was it like to be the land? I could feel the contours of the hills to the east, the hills that separate the southern part of San Francisco Bay from the Pacific Ocean. They looked soft. At first I thought of this contour as erosional, but upon reflection I'm not sure that's true. Unlike, say, the Grand Canyon, I suspect most of the contouring around me was done tectonically, not through water and weather. It's only along along the edges of the edges that the weather really played a role. The edges of the edges. Not the valleys themselves, but the particular contours of the valleys. Not the ridgelines themselves, but the nooks and crannies and twists of the ridgelines. And there, intertwined with and between the mass of the land itself and the weathering elements, was life. Everything green around me, everything tan and barked and gold-dried and wisped, all alive, all shaped by a confluence of fire from the sun and water from the atmosphere. It's otherworldly, really, that fire that shapes life here on Earth. Truly, while the Earth is the, well, earthly mother of our bodies, the animating, animated parts of us, the occult alchemy that is our life force that separates the quick from the dead is shaped by, inherited from, and fed by the sun. The sun makes our molecules bounce to a tune uniquely earthly, uniquely ours, but wholly dependent on the sun's unfettered, radiant song. So there I was, 
confronted by the scale and consequence of the four elements. On one extreme, the forces that built the landscape on which I stood, earth. On the other, the forces that gyrated liltingly across the landscape, air. In between, the flowing, cascading, life-sustaining and life-transmitting liquidity of water, and finally, the otherworldly, animating force of the sun, fire. And there was me. I was also all four, ventilating myself in the brisk afternoon air, taking the air into my body, making it me, exchanging my molecules with it in every breath. The bones and mass of my body, structured and contoured by what energies poured me into this shape, indeed over millennia, my genome selectively cultivated over eons, sculpted by forces and potentials and generosities of the land, the elements in the land, vastly more shaped by these than by the breeze that freshened my face in that moment. And the water, my aqueous self, sloshing about in some kind of ordered mesh of fats and proteins. And by the way, not just me, or rather not not just my human DNA, but a whole community of bacteria of various pedigrees symbiotically working with my DNA, myself, but really just as much a part of me as the air molecules I exchange with the outside world. And powering it all, the dance of electrons popping off atomic shells, ATP to ADP reactions, deep inside each cell of my body, my cellular furnaces, little fireworks operating in loose synchrony, their dynamic ranges kept in check by an artful subconscious conductor as old as mammalian biology itself. Pulsing with the fire of my own metabolism, feeling the coolness of the wind on my face, looking at the ocean and then the bay from my perch on the ridgetop, it was hard to imagine feeling more blessed or healthier. The land was blessing me and healing me. Just by its nature, it was pulling my whole vibration, metabolism, mood, aesthetic, into a more satisfying, more natural, and more vitalized version of myself. I can imagine how strongly my shukra energy, that vital essence described in Ayurveda as the ultimate product of metabolism, was being fed in that moment. My life force was being nurtured at the very deepest level, by the landscape. Because I was aware of the grand dimensionality of it all, I could feel it in a way I'd never had before. My intimacy with the land, with the cosmos, and with my own body was an awesome, sensate artifact of my existence as a spiritual being with a physical body. It could be no other way, of course. I had to be made of something, and what better something than the resources at hand. And at the same time, it was miraculous. I could see and feel how there was really only a difference of scale between what I was witnessing outside of myself and what I was witnessing inside myself, with the same raw materials being applied in beautiful proportion. And how I was both an individual and a tiny participant in a much greater motion of life. But not just of life. I could go even deeper into the evolving experience 
of each of the four elements. I was a member of the chorus, pronouncing the observations of the air, singing the song and carrying the memories of the water, bearing the passion of fire, and containing it all in the cradle that is earth. More consciously aware of my surroundings, I was more able to draw healing, vitality, and chi from it. I was at once more alive as an individual and less attached to my life and my identity as an individual. It was as if I had no beginning and no end, but a really, really interesting, vibrant awareness of some unbounded, unboundable middle. It was great. We'll be right back. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. January is the time of delicate gestation and the desire for reemergence. In only a few weeks, it'll be Bridget's Day, the Celtic first day of spring. Between now and then, cultivate your understanding of yourself, your connection to the earth you're made of, the fire that moves you, and the water and air that flow through you. Connect with your senses. Get yourself awake. It'll soon be time to engage with the world in a new cycle of growth and expansion. Meanwhile, love yourself. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Caracella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney. Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m.